Okay, so we carry on with our study through Psalm 119. Uh, we've got up as far as verse 25. Let's just, uh, again, just ask God's blessing as we, we study this together, shall we? Father, just help us now to see the things that you would have for us this morning. Lord, we again are each in different places in our lives. Father, some of us may be in places where we're rejoicing. And Lord, every day we wake up and it's such a, a joy to, to know you love us and we're walking with you. But Lord... The reality is for many that's not an everyday situation. And Father, so many of us have troubles, we have doubts, we have concerns, we have temptations. And Lord, you know these things, Lord, better than we do. And Father, you've given us this great account in your word here. To help us to realize, Father, that you do know, you do understand. But at the same time, Lord, you don't want to leave us in that predicament. That you love us so much that you want to draw us out of those things. And to give us, Lord, that liberty, that freedom... That light burden, Lord, that you said would be for those that would follow you, Lord. And so, Lord, we just give you this time. Speak to us, we pray. Stir our hearts. And, Lord, may these things not just be little bits of information that we take on, but, Lord, things that really impact and change our thinking. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um Charles Spurgeon says of this block of text, we're going to look at the next eight verses. Uh, he says this. Um, Here it seems to me that we have... The psalmist in trouble, bewailing the bondage to earthly things in which he finds his mind to be held. His soul cleaves to the dust, melts for heaviness, and cries for enlargement from its spiritual prison. In these verses we shall see the influence of the divine word upon a heart which laments its downward tendencies and is filled with mourning because of its deadening surroundings. The word of the Lord evidently arouses prayer, confirms choice, and inspires renewed resolve. It is in all tribulation, whether of body or mind, the surest source of help. This portion has D, the letter D, for its alphabetical letter. It sings of depression in the spirit of devotion, determination, and dependence. So that's kind of Spurgeon's introduction to this block of text we're looking at. And again, each of the groups of eight verses in the Hebrew um, begin with a, a different letter. Um, so the first eight verses begin with an A, effectively. The next eight begin with B. And so uh, we've done, in the Hebrew alphabet, the next letter is Gimel, which is a G, effectively, for us. And now we're on to D, or Dalit, uh, in the Hebrew. So Let's just have a look at these verses we go through. Again, I just there's so much here, and I really encourage you just to take one of these verses a day and just to meditate on it. Allow the Lord to speak to you from the things you read here. So the first thing we see, verse 25, My soul cleaves unto the dust, quicken thou me according to thy word. Now, as I was just reading and studying through this, the first thing that, that struck me was that, that word cleaving. Where else do we find cleaving? Anybody? Genesis, yeah? You think of Genesis when we, we were talking about a husband and a wife, a man and a woman cleaving together, being joined together. Uh, that's the idea. And, and yet here we find that the psalmist is saying, is my soul is cleaving to the dust, effectively being joined together. It's as if, as if being married to the dust. Um, again, the context here, the dust is speaking of the natural of the flesh. Man was formed of the dust of the earth. And you, you pick up a handful of dust and you've effectively got all the component parts of a human being. That's what we are. We're just made of dust. Um, in Genesis 3.19, we read, which often is a, a verse that's quoted at funerals, you know, that we go back to the dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So we are effectively but dust. In terms of our physical frame, 
And, and the psalmist is saying here, it, my, my soul, and now again, just to clarify here, we're made up of three component parts. We're made up of body, soul, and spirit. Our, our body's obviously the, the part we see. It's the part that is physical. Uh, it's the part that's made of dust, in a sense. We've then got our spirit, which is given to us by God. Many commentators would liken it to our conscience. It's our God consciousness. Now, According to what we read in Genesis, at the time of the fall, spiritually we died. The human race died spiritually. So our spirits effectively kind of withered and, and died at the point that we rebelled. The human race rebelled, of course, through Adam and Eve. And so the majority of the world is, is going around spiritually dead. And then we've got the, the soul. The soul is us. The soul is, in Scripture, made up of two component parts, our heart and our mind. Okay, the heart is the not just the organ that, that pumps in our in our chest, but the heart is the the emotional part of us, the thing that responds to emotion and deals with emotion. The mind is that which deals with logic and reason and so on. And we've been given both of these entities, both these parts of us that together make up the soul. And either one of them can be pulled away. Sometimes people's objection or reason they don't want to come to Christ is because the mind says, but it can't be. And logically people would try and rationalize or reason and say, but I don't believe the resurrection took place, or I don't believe this, or whatever. So it becomes an intellectual problem. For other people, they may love the things of this world. They may love other things. And so they don't want to let go, even though maybe at the back of their minds they've come to that, come to that place of realizing that actually God's ways are the right ways. The word of God is true. There's something that holds them back and it's a heart thing. You know, Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17 verse 11 that the heart is deceitful above all things. And the word that's used there is incurably wicked. That, that's the way the heart is. So we've got a problem even in our natural sense that the, the soul has a problem. It's this problem of sin. Now, just to tie that one off a moment ago, I mentioned a moment ago talking about spirit. When we are born again, we are given the Holy Spirit. So actually, we're in a better position than we were when we started. Because originally we had our spirit, and that died because of sin. But when we are born again, it's the Spirit of God that comes and dwells in us. So no longer do we have our own natural spirit that is our God consciousness. We have the Holy Spirit of God himself. And so we are, in many respects, we're in a better position now than Adam was prior to the fall anyway. So... That's the, 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 the makeup of us. But this verse again is saying that my soul cleaves to the dust. It's as if to say that, you know, I've become so conditioned, so used to the things of this life, of this world, that it's become part of me. And that's exactly, I think, what, what he's saying here. I just want to read a couple of quotes from Spurgeon, and I make no apology again for reading a lot of Spurgeon's quotes. Um, he, he's written this incredible, Treaties, really, but just a, a, a very thorough commentary on the whole book of Psalms. But his dealing with Psalm 119 is wonderful. And he just makes these comments here. He says, uh, It may not be straining the language if we conceive that he also felt and bemoaned his earthly mindedness and spiritual deadness. There was a tendency in his soul to cling to earth, which he greatly bewailed. It's one of those kind of like, doesn't want to, and yet he finds that tendency there, that desire. Whatever was the cause of his complaint, it was no surface evil, but an affair of his inmost spirit. His soul cleaved to the dust, and it was not a casual and accidental falling into the dust, but a continuous and powerful tendency or cleaving 
to the earth. You know, I think that's, that, that really is a great little summary of the, the problem that the psalmist is presenting. And I don't know about you, but if you look at your life, if you look at the, the struggles and the, the problems you go through, it's because we have this natural tendency to cleave to the things of this world. The things of this world have such an impact on us. And of course, we're bombarded. We live in a world where, you know, the whole idea of marketing and advertising is trying to appeal to our emotions and our senses and everything else. And so much of it would lead us away from God. So we're just in a world where we're kind of on the back foot all the time because we have this continual challenge being presented to us in, in terms of the way the world is and the way that the world would love us just to become like everybody, like the world is, the, the accepted norm. As I said, it's as if here the, the soul is kind of joined in marriage uh, to the natural decaying elements of the world. It's kind of uh, you know, seeing it and, and, and fearing it. And so the psalmist here is pleading with God to make him alive. Because he recognizes that this isn't this, the whole idea of cleaving to the dust is cleaving to something that is death in a sense, is decaying. And so he pleases God not to allow him in a sense to sink into that quicksand, but to make him alive. He says, quicken thou me according to thy word. Now, according to God's word, there's a couple of things here. One is because God has given promises in his word. That's why the psalmist appeals to God's word. Because those promises are true, our faithful God never reneges on a, a promise he gives. His word's the only agent, as it were, that can divide between the dust and the soul. Just turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles, to the book of Hebrews in chapter 4. It's one of those kind of pivotal scriptures, another one that's worth committing to memory. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And we just read there, for the word of God is quick, living, it's alive, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. And this is what the word of God will do. It says, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the dividing in parts of soul and spirit, and the joints and marrow. Okay, well, joints and marrow, that's our body. So we have in this verse, speaking of our body, of our soul, of our spirit. And the word of God has the ability and the power to divide up in our lives that which is fleshly, that which is spiritual, that which is of God, that which is of the world. And it says, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the hearts. So just a really kind of clear statement. So the first thing that the psalmist does here is appeal to God because of the promises in God's word, because God has promised to divide between that which is fleshly and spiritual. And, and that's what we need, because uh, the psalmist seems to be in a position that he's unable to change his own condition. And it kind of comes to that acknowledge, acknowledgement, because he says, my soul cleaves unto the dust, quicken thou me. His appeal is to God, not to any other agency or to any other ability or power, but to God himself. God, I need you to help me be separated from this world. And again, he says, the remedy to that problem is God's word, according to thy word, as we've just read. God's word is able to separate, able to put a division between the things in our life which are worldly and fleshly and the things that are godly. But also because God's word is life. I mean, it it was said of, Peter said to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? You know, the words that Jesus speaks, they are life. God's word is living, as we've just read. 
You know, it's by the word of God that we're to be born again. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it speaks there of being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So the, the appeal here to quicken me according to your word is because A, your word has given me promises, A, your, or B, your word is able to actually bring that division. And finally, it's because, as we've seen already, the word of God is alive. It's the one thing that can make that difference. And we hopefully are starting to see this pattern. The, the whole of this psalm is getting us to realize how important the word of God is to a believer. I just want to read to you. Um, the the back of each of the, the chapters or sections, Spurgeon lists uh, hints for pastors and, and lay people. So things that you could use in a sermon if you wanted to. I just want to read this list because I think this is fabulous. It's a great way of, uh, of kind of breaking down and thinking through these things. The first thing uh, he says is, um, just quoting that second part, quicken thou me. He says, there are many reasons why we should seek quickening. Firstly, because of the deadening influence of the world. Isn't that true? Doesn't the world just deaden us? It kind of takes away that capacity to feel and to respond and have emotion sometimes. And uh, we read in, um, Paul speaks about our conscience is becoming seared as with a hot iron. You know, if you have a, 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 a burn, you can lose sensation in that particular uh, part of your flesh. Well, that's exactly what the world does. It causes us to lose our sensation in terms of the, the abhorrent nature of sin, as far as God is concerned. So it's because of the deadening influence of the world. It says, the influence of vanity. This is another reason why we need to be quickened. Because we're surrounded by deceivers. People around us all the time that will pull us astray. Because of the effect of seasons of affliction upon us. And then, some of the motives for seeking, for seeking quickening. So these are some of the reasons that we should want to be made alive, quickened by God's word. He says, because of what you are. Firstly, he says, a Christian. He says, life seeks more life. If we've been made alive, born again, then naturally we should want to be kept in that state. And because of what you ought to be, also. Because of what we shall be. Again, we're speaking of all these promises. And we looked at this in the opening, really, four verses of the psalm that speak of our condition. But then the next four verses that speak about where we will end up. The next one he's got on the list is, in order to be obedient. That's another reason we need to be quickened. Also, for your comfort, because your life will be better if you are in the right place with God. If you are made alive and you are living and you are not cleaved, probably the wrong grammar there, but if you're not cleaving to the dust, then your life is going to be blessed if you are cleaving to God instead. As a security, as the best security against attacks from the enemy, because even if we resolve the issue in the short term, tomorrow's another day. And tomorrow will bring other challenges. To invigorate our memories. And that's so important from both sides. Because our memories, sometimes we can think back of things we've done wrong. And so by being alive and thinking back on those things, it can be a great aid to stop us making those mistakes again. Yet at the same time, we can think about the blessings that we've experienced and we've known when we've been close to God. I love that quote of the news, Bileswell Chambers, where he says, Suppose God is the God you know him to be when you're closest to him. What an impertinence worry is. I just think about that. You know, we often worry, but if God is the God we know him to be when we are closest to him, I mean, you think of Moses by the Red Sea, or Daniel sitting there with lions surrounding him, or many other examples we could draw from scripture. 
And God comes through every time. But that's what God's like. So why when we have a little predicament do we suddenly worry and stop trusting God? So, again, to invigorate our memories. And the last thing he's got on this file, he says, to consider as a motive to seeking this quickening the terrible consequences of losing spiritual life, or in other words, of lacking it in its manifest display. So the last thing on that section is that we should want to be made alive because actually the alternative is that in a sense that life gets sucked out of us and the world gets us. The devil would have us where he wants us, where we just become numb to the things of God. That's a terrible position and and predicament to be in. He's then got some of the ways in which the quickening may be brought to us. He says, well, it must be by the Lord himself. Quicken me, O Lord. So that, that appeal is to God. It's by the turning of the eye. So God has got to do this, but we have an agency and we have a part to play by turning our eyes to him. By the word, of course, is the, the clear thing. Here. By the precepts, by affliction. And that's interesting because we're going to see that come up a number of times later in the psalm. How the psalmist recalls actually things that have gone wrong, the affliction he's gone through, have been used by God as things to draw him back to God. I mean, great example in scripture is the prodigal son. Wanted to have the world and have everything he could have. And he ends up in a desperate situation. And it was that situation that propelled him back to God and to his father. Another way that uh, quickening can be brought to us is by comfort. So God, by blessing us. And we started, if you remember last week, um, that we prayed that God would deal bountifully with his servant. You know, Lord, bless me because actually if I'm not blessed and I'm in all sorts of predicaments, it may actually become a barrier. And so those comforts can also be something that quicken us. And the last little group he's got here uh, is to inquire where are please when we come, sorry, where are our please uh, when we come before God to ask for quickening. So the things he's listing is, you know, why are we pleading before God for this? Well, it's a necessity. This is an earnest desire, which is different from a necessity. Necessity is something that we have to have. But an earnest desire speaks again of something that the Lord has really worked deep in us. It's an appeal to God's righteousness. It's that recognition that what God is and has is so much better than anything the world has. To his loving kindness. It's because God is loving and kind and gentle and patient with us. That we should want to respond to that. And again, that text, the text says, is according to his word. So, I've got a few of those printed out. If you want a list of that later on, let you have those. Um, okay, let's move on to the next verse, verse 26. So, I have declared my ways and thou heardest me. Uh, Adam Clark, uh, in his commentary, just phrases that opening part, I have investigated my ways. Uh, this is really not, not declaring God's ways. This is, I've declared my ways. I've looked at my own life and now I'm making declaration before God. Of my my ways, my life, the way things really are within me. You know, we read in uh, Proverbs twenty verse twenty four, "It is man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way?" Well, man's goings should be. See, that's again a statement of how it should be. Good man's goings should be according to God's path, because any other path is just a fumbling, bumbling, stumbling through life with no discernible path or destination. That's what our life is without God. It is just, again, must might stick in your head if I say it again, fumbling, bumbling, stumbling, those three things. That is what your life is like if it is not walking with God. And there is no discernible path, there's no destination without God. So our way without God is just, just a mess. 
But what the psalmist is saying here is, is I've looked at my ways, I've looked at the situation. And clearly there's an element of confession in this. Because it says, and thou heardest me. It's not just a, I've just taken stock, it's but I've taken stock and realised just how bad things are. I've realised what my life is like. If I'm given the reins of, of my life and I make all the decisions about what I want to do and how I want to do things. You know, Frank Sinatra probably knows by now, but you know, doing it my way is not the solution to the problem. You know, I think what the, the psalmist is, is saying here is really that, you know, Lord, I've been honest before you. I've admitted that my ways are not your ways, and nor are my thoughts your thoughts. You know, I've declared that my ways are vanity, futility, and perversity. And you've heard. I mean, just, isn't that incredible? This verse is saying, I've declared my ways, and you heard. Not came down on me with the full force of your wrath or your judgment bearing down on me. But you heard. I mean, that, that to me... I don't know where you are in your life or what you've gone through in your walk as a Christian. But when you stop and you actually do, as the psalmist says here, you consider your ways to start with and you declare your ways before your, before God. You know, there's kind of a, a, a trembling there almost that you expect, if God is just, that God should just crush you. The amount of times I've made promises before God that, Lord, I will serve you, I will do this. I won't do that. I'm not going to allow that feeling or that emotion or those thoughts. Or And suddenly you find yourself back in that place. And just sometimes just feeling very disgusted at your own life and the way you conduct yourself. And again, we're not talking here about the outward stuff, the things that people get to see. I mean, there are people whose lives really are very corrupt and you can see that on the surface. But we're talking about something that's much deeper. And you see that in that first verse again. My soul cleaves to the dust. We're talking about our soul. You know, nobody gets to see your soul. I mean, the closest we get to see each other's souls is when we look into each other's eyes. And you can sometimes see a little bit more about what's going on. But this is the stuff that's going on deep within us. The things that nobody else gets to see. And this is one of the reasons I love this psalm is because it is so open. It's so transparent. It's just like bringing it all out in the open and saying, look, actually, you know what? This is the way it is. We, we have these problems. We have this struggle with sin. But God doesn't intend us to live in that predicament. Another quote from Spurgeon. He said, our confessions are not meant to make God know our sins, but to make us know them. I like that. God already knows. You know, it's somebody years ago I remember saying to me, and I just, just stuck, that when Jesus died on the cross, all of my sins were yet future. So although they may shock me, they don't shock God. They don't take God by surprise. Because God already knows the end from the beginning. And when Jesus died to pay for my sin, he knew everything that I have ever thought, said or done in rebellion against God. Anything that's sin or transgression or iniquity, those words the Bible uses. God knew all of that in advance. And Jesus was still willing to pay. So nothing takes God by surprise, even though we're often taken by surprise. Let me just read that again. Our confessions are not meant to make God know our sins, but to make us know them. Let me just clarify, we were reading through with Marla during the week in her Bible, and we had these words, you know, transgression and sin, and we are just talking about the difference. And Just for the purposes of clarification, sin is an old English term, it comes from archery, and sin was to miss the mark. So you, you, you're aiming for that bit in the middle. And if you miss the mark, it was referred to as a sin. That's what sin is. Sin is missing God's standard. It's perfection. It's not that you didn't try, it's just that you couldn't do it. 
That's what sin is. Sin is missing God's standard, not hitting God's perfect standard. But then we've got transgression. You know, and we, we have various words that have trans as part of them. Transport and transform and so on. You know, and they all talk about going from one place to another, but there's willful intent there. And that's the, the difference with sin and transgression. Sin is that tried to do it, couldn't. Messed up. Didn't have the ability. And that's because we're naturally sinful. A transgression is that actually going from one place to another. It's a making a willful choice, a decision. And then the other one we find that's mentioned in scripture is iniquity. Iniquity really just speaks of our own twisted human nature. You know, an example that's often been used. You know, you put a, a child, a small child in a room with some toys and you observe to see which toys they want to play with and they move all the other ones into the opposite corner and they're quite happy playing with just those toys. Now you let another child come in and they go and play with those toys. What does the first child want to do? They want to play with those toys. It's just, we just see it in, in, in every part of our lives. There is an tendency to do things that are not godly, that are not God's ways. And that's iniquity. A man by the name of Richard Greenham said this. He said, I have declared my ways. We're just quoting that verse. He says, he thinks upon his ways, speaking of the psalmist. That is, his inward imperfections and outward aberrations from the straight and straight ways of God. Now, that those not a uh, tautology there. What he's saying is that the straight as in a, a way that is narrow, like a, a straight that a boat would traverse down, um, so God's ways are straight, they're narrow, they're, they're defined, but also straight, they're clear and they're di- directed in a, in a clear direction. This is straight and straight ways of God. And here is not ashamed to declare them. That is to acknowledge and confess that all this came upon him because he was forgetful to do God's will. Note the connection between this and the previous verse. My soul clave unto the dust because I clave not to thee. And that's really the... The conclusion. So, I like what this individual is trying to get across there. That sometimes we, sometimes we forget to do the things that God would have us do. Sometimes we intentionally do things that are wrong. Sometimes we try and get it right and we just miss the mark. A whole range of things. But it's this declaring it before God. And this is another wonderful thing about God. Because, in fact, Joy and I were just talking during the week about the way within the Roman Catholic Church they have confession. And we were saying it must be really strange for the priest to have people in his congregation coming and confessing and telling them all the things they've done wrong and the thoughts they've had and everything else. I'd hate that. I've got enough problems of my own. <laughs> but to have a God that you can go to that won't ever think less of you that you can go to God at any time. And as the psalmist says, I've declared my ways. I've come before you. I haven't tried to hide it. So as I was going to bed last night, I had uh, a K-Wave on, a carriage up a radio station. And it was just a verse that was quoted. I'm just going to see if I can find it. It's from Proverbs 28. Let's see if we can find the verse. Yeah, verse 13. I just thought it was so applicable. It says, He that covers his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Well, isn't that a great verse to tag on with this? Because there are a lot of people that try and hide over, gloss over their sin, trying to make it seem not such a bad thing. Or immediately they'll compare with something else or somebody, but I'm not as bad as that person. I haven't done what they've done. Yeah, we try and justify it. But as Solomon tells us here, 
He that covers his sins shall not prosper. And praise God that the psalmist is in that place with God, although he feels as if his soul is cleaving to the things of this world. He's in a place where he still knows enough of God to know that God won't just dismiss him and cast him aside, that he can come and be honest with God and say, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling with this situation. I'm struggling with this, this feeling, this bitterness or anger or despondency. I'm struggling with lust or I'm struggling with just a lack of faith or trusting you. And you know, we have all sorts of things that bombard us, different pressures, different anxieties that would love to consume our thinking. The worst thing you can do is to try and cover over those things and pretend they're not there. Pretend you've got it sorted and covered. Because you don't, you don't. I mean, I'll be honest, I've been there. I've tried to, you know, gloss over and cover over and just try a little bit harder. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. He who covers his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. What a great verse in context of what we're looking at. Let's just turn to First John, towards the end of the New Testament. I'm sure it's a verse you know, we've quoted it, we've read it a number of times, but it's so, so important. First John chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He's coming before God, He's confessing, he's admitting, he's being honest, he's declaring his ways before God. And he says, and thou heardest me. William Plummer said, past answers to prayer should encourage us to come the more boldly to the throne of grace. Jacob never forgot the night he spent at Bethel. Just quoting a situation from the book of Genesis there. But, you know, I love that. Past answers to prayer should always encourage us to come more boldly. Yeah, we've seen God answers, answer our prayers in the past. And the way God has dealt with us. And God has only ever dealt with us according to his grace and his mercy. In the book of Romans, Romans 10 verse 10, it says, For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, we have to make that confession of our sin. We have to acknowledge our standing before God. If we are going to ever move into that place where God, through his word, can change that situation. And then the verse goes on, teach me thy statutes. So in a sense, I think what the psalmist is saying, I've, I've received mercy instead of wrath. So what else can I say other than now, teach me the right way. Teach me your statutes. If you remember, we're looking at what these different words, statutes, testimonies and so on mean. Well, statutes, again, is, this speaks of this engraving upon our hearts. God's decree is being engraven upon us. Teach me now those things. Lord, impress them upon me. Make them part of me. So that I never again find myself going my ways, but your ways. Another quote. Mercy, which pardons transgression, sets us longing for grace, which prevents transgression. Let me read that again. I think it's really good. Mercy, which pardons transgression, sets us longing for grace, which prevents transgression. May we boldly ask for more when God has given us much. Again, in his notes to to preachers, Spurgeon just has three things for that verse. He says, confession, absolution, and instruction. 
Oh, and that, that's so important because we not only do we need to confess and we need to be open and honest with God, and I encourage us to be honest with each other. I mean, I, James talks about confessing your faults to one another, not sins. We're not to get into that confessional thing. And sometimes it's very unhelpful if you go and tell somebody else exactly what you're struggling with because you may lead them astray as well. So we need to be a little careful and cautious. But we should be honest enough to admit that we're struggling. I had a phone call from somebody during the week who's very special, very close to me. And praise God, they just said, look, I'm really struggling at the moment. I'm struggling to read the word of God. And I praise God that there was that openness. I said, been there, know exactly what that's like. Where you go through those days and it's just, you just don't have that drive or that desire to pick up the Bible. There's so many other things competing for your time and attention. and You kind of want to pray, but you don't really feel that you should pray because you think God probably won't listen because I'm a bit of a mess at the moment. Look, God will always listen. God will always hear us. So confession, absolution, the fact that when we do go and confess our sins, he is faithful and just, as we just read from First John. But then it's followed by instruction. You remember the count that we have uh, in the Gospels? I'm not sure whether I've got the verse here or not. Uh, yes, I have. Matthew 12, verse 44. I don't need to look it up now. But there's a situation where Jesus drives these demons out of this man. But then makes the comment that, you know, you need to fill that void. Otherwise, the, the, the latter condition is worse than the first. It's no good just cleansing our, our minds and our hearts and, and getting separated from the world. If we don't, don't then go and put something instead in place of it. We need God's word to be there. You know, this again is the whole thing with salvation and sanctification. We're not just saved and cleansed and washed from our sin and clean slate. Because if, if God left us there, we'd be probably, I say worse than we would be. In terms of our lives on earth, it would be because we'd then be so wrapped up in sin and the things of the world. So we have to fill our life with the things of God. Throughout the New Testament, so many verses, set your mind on things above. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. You know, it's one thing getting rid of the problem, but unless you replace it with a solution, you're no better off really. So go on to verse 27. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. We'll come to that second part of the verse in a moment. But in a sense, again, I think the psalmist is saying, I want to understand your way. I mean, the first thing, of course, there is that we need to know where God's way is. We need to understand how to find God's way if we're going to walk in it. And so it's that make me to understand how to find your way, and then to hear your precepts, and then once I've heard, to be given the strength to walk in the way of thy precepts. Spurgeon again said, Blind obedience has but small beauty. God would have us follow him with our eyes open. To obey the letter of the word is all that the ignorant can hope for. Again, I think many Christians have put themselves in that position. That they've tried to follow God's way, they've tried to, from a sense of almost religious devotion, live their lives according to a set of rules that they think they should live. And what happens? We get frustrated, we get disappointed, we find that we fail. We realize that we didn't have the ability or the strength or the willpower to overcome sin in our lives. And many Christians end up giving up because they can't solve that problem. But the reality is, We can't solve that problem. It is only the Lord himself. And God has done this and allowed this so that we realize we have to depend upon him. We sing that song, we've been singing it recently. I need thee, every hour I need thee. I love it because it's just so true. 
But then the, the verse goes on. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. It's just a plea to God. You know, again, don't let me stay where I was. Let me understand. Let me grow. Let me know and understand these things. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. Yeah, and, and that's the reality that when we come to that place of understanding the things of God, we want to talk to other people. And actually, talking to other people is a great way of cementing those things in for ourselves. Have you ever tried to explain to somebody else what you believe? The first thing that happens is you start to think, what do I believe? And then you start to think, how do you present to somebody what you believe? And of course, why do you believe? And it's good that we kind of think these things through, but when you speak to other people, the first thing it does, as I say, it cements it in your own mind, your own understanding. So the psalmist is saying here, Lord, make me understand the way of thy precepts, so I shall talk of thy wondrous works. You know, often you find, I think almost any person that teaches the Bible will say that we get far more out of the preparation and the study than we do out of teaching. We can't communicate half of the things the Lord shows us. It's such a blessing to be able to prepare and teach the Bible. And this is another quote for you. He says, It is ill talking of what we do not understand. We must be taught of God till we understand, and then we may hope to communicate our knowledge to others with a hope of profiting them. Talk without intelligence is mere talk and idle talk. But the words of the instructed are as pearls which adorn the ears of them that hear. You know, there are lots of people that like talking. They like talking to other people. They like the sound of their own voices. But, you know, unless we've got something to say, unless we've got something godly to say, probably we're best refraining. But when we're in that place that we've sought God, you know, when we've understood the way of his precepts, then we can talk to others of God's wondrous works. And the thing is, what changes is it's then based upon real life experience that you've had. It's not just a, somebody said this, it's I've been here, I've gone through this, you know, and I want to tell you how good God is because I've seen it personally. Verse 28, my soul melts for heaviness. You see, I, I think the psalmist gets to this point and it's uh, almost... You're kind of getting up and the strain and the effort of separating from the worldliness that surrounds us almost becomes too much and it almost drags him back down. It's my soul melts for heaviness. And it's that plea, strengthen thou me according to thy word. My, my kind of understanding, my just trying to get inside what the psalmist was saying, I just made these notes. I'm overwhelmed at the gulf that exists between your way and my way. I'm crumbling inside. My whole existence is being consumed because of this weight of sin in my life. For my way is rebellion. It is sin because it is to forsake your statutes and judgments. So now I plead, while I still have the energy to do so, that you would strengthen me according to your word. Give me the strength to stand again. I think that's a a big, long paraphrase of what's being said there. And again, it's a good notice, according to your word. I mean, that is a phrase that keeps repeating every time is applicable. You see, God's word says that he's able to make his servants stand. We read that in Romans 6. God is able to make you stand. This isn't something that, this is kind of like a question mark over the, the end of this one. God is able to make you stand. God is able to make you victorious in your Christian life. In the book of Revelation, so many times in chapters 2 and 3, we speak of, we find those speaking about those who will overcome, the overcomers. And this promise is given to them. Well, that's not just some elite group that, 
you know, went to Bible seminary and spent all their lives studying theology. Now, this is the everyday run-of-the-mill Christian that goes through the same troubles and the things we go through, and yet by God's grace has come to that place of realizing how to deal with these things. And it's not by making some resolution or decision. It's according to his word. It's as simple as that. And, and the, the staggering thing is that so often we struggle as Christians and yet the solution really is that simple. It's according to God's word. It's just allowing God's word to impact our thinking. See, God's word will strengthen us. It's just like the daily manna. You know the Israelites in the, in the wilderness? The manna fell on the ground every day, their food for 38 years. And it was their, their, their nourishment, their sustenance. It was everything they needed. God's word is that. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Job said this, I love this, verse 20, chapter 23, verse 12 of Job. He says, I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And Job's saying, look, food's great, food's okay, food's one thing. But you know, the words that come out of God's mouth, they are so much more nourishing to me. And bear in mind that only one third of us, in a sense, is the physical part. Verse 29. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law graciously. Version said this, that David would not only be kept from that way, but having kept, have it kept from him. I think it's interesting to note here, it's not remove from, uh, sorry, remove me from the way of lying, it's move, remove from me the way of lying. It's not saying that there is a way of lying and I don't want to be there, it's saying within me. Already there is a way of lying, and I want it taken out of me. And grant me thy law graciously. You know, lying is inherent in our fallen nature. It's part of the way we are, the, the world. I mean, right from the, the beginning, right from the fall, we find lies permeating everything. You know, Satan's attack on Eve to start with is, did God really say? And then he challenges what God has said and then lies. You won't really die. And so on. And so because Satan, we're told, is the father of lies, naturally lying is so easy for us to do. And we do it all the time. But the, the biggest problem with lying is when we start to lie to ourselves. When we start to try and convince ourselves that actually it's okay or it's not that bad or... I'm just going through a tough time, or it's because of this or because of that. And isn't that what we do? Right, you, that's what I do. When things go wrong and I, I slip, I blame something. I look for something to blame or someone to blame. It's because this happened or because that happened or because that person was really unkind or because that person really stressed me out or it's because of this situation. What are we doing? We're just lying. We're just finding an excuse to try and make ourselves feel better about the situation. You know, it's, lying is just a major contributing factor to the present predicament. But it's not just lying to ourselves, it's lying to God. In Psalm 51, this is the account of David after the situation with Bathsheba. And of course David had sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, who he had killed. Ahithophel, who was Bathsheba's grandfather who was one of his closest allies and friends and counsellors. You know, a lot of people David have upset, uh, upset and sinned against. And yet in Psalm 51, David says, against you only have I sinned. And David realised that the biggest problem wasn't, in a sense, lying to people around him. 
It wasn't even the lying to himself, it was the lying to God. That was the biggest problem. Because the moment we can't be honest with God, we have a real problem. And we need to get to that place where we know we can just come and talk to God. That he knows, he cares, he understands. Look at this psalm if you ever want proof of that. Now this psalmist is telling us, look, I've been there. And you can go to God. wherever, Whatever situation, however messed up things have got in your heart and your mind. Even if yesterday things were brilliant and today things are not, you can still go to God today. You know, we've probably all lied as well about the power and the effect of sin in our lives. In that sense, we, we kind of live in denial, pretending it's not that bad. You know, we've lied to ourselves, pretending that we can control sin. And yet, as Job tells us, sin is like a consuming fire that would root out all our increase. We're trying to turn a blind eye and pretend it's not. And we all, you know, we pretend, don't we, to others, everything's okay. We wear this mask so often that people see. Just lying. And so the psalmist again, remove from me, because it's within me, the way of lying. And then it's, and grant me thy law graciously. So it's a plea that God would grant. I mean, we talk about grants, the government gives grants, various charities and organizations give grants. What are they doing? They're giving something that wasn't earned. That's what a grant is. You haven't earned it. You've been given something. Grace. Grant me thy law graciously. It is his grace alone. Spurgeon says, He is in a gracious state who looks upon the law itself as a gift of grace. You know, a lot of people look at the law and they don't understand it and they question it and so on. You know, for us, we look at the law, we look at God's word, and we realize it is a gift of grace. That God has given us this manner, this food, this sustenance. And it's not dead, it's not something that is just old and doesn't really apply anymore. It's living and powerful and every day of our lives, the word of God can give us all the sustenance spiritually that we need. You see again, it's wrath that we deserve. You know, so any good thing that we do get is purely a result of his grace. To grant me thy law graciously. It's a humble petition. It's as if the law It's kind of written so that it would help us to stand. It is. But the law will stand as a a judge in a sense over us. That's, That's what the law does. But it will stand as a judge over our flesh life. It will preside in the courts of our mind and pronounce God's verdict upon sin wherever it dare bring a challenge against God's way. That's why that plea is there. Grant me thy law graciously. Lord, give me that knowledge and that understanding of your law, your ways. I, I want to have in my life that, that check and that balance so that anything of this world that comes in is checked against God's law, God's standard. So the last three verses, we read verse 30. I've chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. I mean, this is a decision, isn't it? This is a, in a sense, I know this is a little bit like a, a resolution, But there's something behind it. Because I've chosen the way of truth. I've made that decision to walk in the way. And already we've seen so many times how the psalmist has appealed to God for the strength to walk and remain and live in that way. I've chosen. And that's what we have to do. You know, we have to make that conscious decision because God will never force us to obey him. But this is what I want. It's what I've chosen. I want to reject the lies. I want to reject the things of this world that would just eat up my heart and my mind. 
that would make me a grumpy and unpleasant and unkind person, that make me intolerant to my wife and my children and those around me. I don't want those things. You know, the bitterness, the resentment, the lust, the anger, the pride, the despondency, the self-centeredness, the self-aggrandizement, the self-pity, and anything else that will put me upon the throne of my heart and usurp the one that should really be there. But I don't want that. I've chosen the way of truth and thy judgments I've laid before me. Verse 31, I've stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. The words that we have there, stuck, is exactly the same word that we have back in verse 25 that's translated cleaved. So, to start with, we have the psalmist kind of in a bit of despair, feeling that just so trapped and and pulled in by the things of this world and being joined together as if married to the things of this world. But as we've gone on and we've come to that place, that we've come before God, we've been open, we've been honest, we said, Lord, just... I can't do this, and I hate that way. Take away lying from me. I want to choose the way of truth. And so now we come to verse 31, and it says, I've cleaved unto thy testimonies. I've joined, been joined unto them. And then there's that little plea, Oh Lord, put me not to shame. And I don't think there's a, a question or a suggestion there that, oh, I'm not sure whether God's going to ever let me down on this, because God will never let us down. That's not what is being said. It's, oh Lord, don't let me ever go back to that place. Don't let me go back to that place where there is so much shame. You know, in Romans 6 again, it just speaks there about the things that we used to do. And it says, what fruit then do we have in those things of which we are now ashamed? And I challenge you, think if you want to, of anything you've been into or done in your life before you came to know Christ, before you came to this moment, Anything that wasn't of God, and look at it seriously and ask yourself, what fruit was there? In what way are you proud or pleased of those things? You know, sometimes you hear people give testimonies about how they became Christians, and they talk about this life they lived of drugs and sex and rock and roll and and the whole thing, and, you know, they make this testimony seem so incredible of all the things they did. And you kind of think to yourself, have you really left it behind because you speak of it in such kind of a fond way? Now, when you really come to that place of realizing just how destructive the flesh is. You can never speak about those things in a way that would suggest for a moment that there was anything good in it. There is nothing good in those things. You know, and it's just again, you see God's grace because God will never let us fall or go to a place beyond which we are able to cope in regards to temptation. We looked at that from Second Corinthians a few weeks ago, that verse. And the fact that despite the problems that the psalmist here is having, and you and I, if we're honest, have, despite all those problems, the psalmist had never, ever forgotten God. He'd never come to a place where he'd given up on God. And even in this verse verse 31, I've stuck to my testimonies. It's kind of like, well, Lord, actually, I've never wanted to walk away from you. I mean, there's things that we do that we know we shouldn't do, but it's never to the point of saying, I reject God. We've never been there. We never want to be there. There's still underneath it all the everlasting arms. And so verse 32 to finish for this morning. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. And this is just another plea. Because this is a, a looking forward again. I will run 
the way of thy commandments. And it's not just a walking, it's a running. It implies joyful, exuberance, excitement. You know, it kind of that almost that picture of heaven when all the pressures and all the sin and the temptation, all the problems of this life are gone. No more sickness, sadness or tears. Well, that's when we're going to run. But there's a plea also for now that we live that way. When thou shalt enlarge my heart. And that's what we need. We need a greater capacity for the things of God. So pray that prayer. Pray that God gives you a greater love for him. A greater love for his word. If this morning your your love for God's word is just a little, just a little flicker, but that's okay because great big fires can start with small flames. And just pray that God enlarge your heart and give you a greater love and desire and passion for him and for the things of him because we already can see and we know enough to know that that's where the blessings are. Remember how this psalm psalm starts, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him. I mean, that's that's where we want to be, that place of blessing, walking with him. The current hearts are not enough. We need God to supernaturally working us, to enlarge our hearts. Let's leave it for there and, and bow our hearts now and pray. Well, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, that we can really, truly just get up close and personal with you. That we can lay it all out and say, Lord, this is the way it is. Lord, I struggle. I have times when I doubt. I have times when I look at things that I shouldn't look at. I have times that lust creeps in. I have times, Lord, where I'm not kind or gentle. Where I don't exhibit and show the fruit of your spirit. There's times that I don't love my spouse or my children or my family as I should. There's times that I don't act as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, which I should be. There's times, Lord, that I allow despondency to drive me to distraction and things that are not good. There's times, Lord, that I allow bitterness, anger, frustration, and things, Lord, that are not helpful. And, Lord, it's so easy to find ourselves just feeling like we are cleaving to the dust. And yet, Lord, your word can separate between the dust and between the soul and the spirit. And so, Father, enlarge our hearts this morning, we pray. Give us a greater capacity and a desire for you and for the things of you. Lord, while you're doing it, I pray you give us a greater love for each other. But, Lord, just enlarge our hearts that we can live this blessed life. Father, it's like this wonderful gem that's being presented that's Lord in the distance but we can run after it we can seek it we can seek you Lord with our whole hearts and so Father let us be determined Lord not to make a resolution or basing upon our own ability or strength but Lord just in our weakness to turn to your word and be strengthened and to live Lord the life that you've called us to live a life of abundance a life of blessing So Lord, we just give you this time. Thank you now. Be with us through this coming week, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.